Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I can't come up with anything cute for the opening on this one. But at least I'm still pretty. We are here today to talk about Seeing Red, the 19th episode of Season 6. It aired on May 7th, 2002, and was written by Stephen S. Knight with Rebecca Rand Kirshner and Stephen S. Knight as story editors. This episode was directed by Michael Gershman, who you might remember was a director of photography for 82 episodes of Buffy, and most recently directed Older and Far Away. Seeing Red is where Buffy season six gets serious, and there's a lot of difficult material in this episode. This is gonna be a rough ride, but not because it's not good. Quite the opposite, actually. Okay, we're here, ready for action. Uh, uh, bad guy fighting action. <laughs> Guys, you didn't have to. You know, if you still want to be alone. No, no, we're good. We're better than good. Great. Super. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, we'll stop. <laughs> oh, you better not. Seeing Red is the turning point for the last movement of season six, and some of the roughest material we get in all of Buffy is packed into this episode. The stuff with Warren is disturbing, and for any woman who's come up against this kind of guy, and I think most of us have at one point or another, the portrayal can be really chilling. His misogyny has been on a low boil since his first appearance last season in I Was Made to Love You, but here it's on full blast. The questions raised last week and really all season about the nature of human evil find full expression here in Warren, who digs into demonic sources of power to feed his entitlement. And then we have Spike, who engages in one of the most traditionally human acts of evil and entitlement, rape. The episode opens with love and light and ends in darkness and wanton destruction of unearned power fueled by entitlement. All right, let's get through it. Is she back yet? Oh, hey. Ha, you and... Uh, that's my cue to go put some clothes on. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm totally not here. You guys, you do whatever you want. Um, I'll go watch TV <laughs> downstairs really loud in the basement where I can't hear anything. <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> I love you guys. The episode starts out with a lovely morning after for Willow and Tara. While it's wonderful to see these two blissfully reunited, one of my favorite things is Dawn's giddy reaction when she realizes they're back together. Her offer to watch TV in the basement really loud is so sweet, and when they use that clip during the season 7 opening credits, it always brings me back to the warmth and happiness of this reunion. Throughout the day, we get Willow and Tara working together to solve the riddles the geek trio left behind, but they don't work too hard. They hardly leave their bed. The narrative role for Willow and Tara in this episode is to be blissfully happy, and anyone who knows Whedon knows that the blissfully happy people are headed for tragedy, and this, of course, is no different. But since this is the only happiness we get in this episode, let's hold on to it for just a little while longer. Maybe we can cross-reference them with the county clerk's office. Would that involve getting up? Eventually. And I'm coming out firmly against it. What about the trio's evil scheme? Well, I'm kind of busy working on my own. <laughs> Tara and Willow, y'all. Tara and Willow. God, what were you thinking? You're asking me that? 
Oh, because your decision-making skills have really sparkled lately. I'm not saying I didn't make any mistakes. But last time I checked, slaughtering half of Europe wasn't one of them. He doesn't have a soul, Buffy. Just some leash they jammed in his head. You think he'd still be all snuggles if that chip ever stopped working? Xander is tough to get behind in this episode. When Buffy goes to see him in his apartment, he's a complete ass to her. She's right when she tells him that what she does is none of his business, and he's wrong when he says that it ever was. But even though this interaction is hard to watch, I have to say I'm relieved that the secrets are out, that finally Buffy can talk about her life and her experience openly with her friends. Nothing puts more distance between people than secrets and lies, and even angry, brutal honesty is better than deception. So we follow Xander through the streets of Sunnydale to the magic box, where I choose to believe that he loses his nerve to speak to Anya rather than that he's stalking her. He goes to the bronze and has an awkward interaction with a pretty girl, and then a bloody one with Warren. He goes back to Buffy's house, discovers Spike's jacket there, and finds Buffy bruised and shaken from the recent attack. And it seems like things can't get any worse. They will, of course. This is Whedon, y'all. The man doesn't pull punches. But finally, the next day, the self-righteous and whiny Xander gets replaced by the Xander we know and love and have missed dearly. I thought I had bottom, but it hurt that you didn't trust me enough to tell me about Spike. It hurt. I'm sorry. I should have told you. Maybe you would have. I hadn't given you so many reasons to think I'd be an ass about it. Guess we've all done a lot of things lately we're not proud of. I think I've got your beat. Wanna compare? Not so much. I don't know what I'd do without you and Will. Let's not find out. It's good to have you back, Xander. You were missed, and in the upcoming days, we're gonna need you. Ask me again why I could never love you. Buffy, my God, I didn't... Because I stopped you. Oh, man. This is the toughest discussion to have about Spike because what he does here is so horrible, so reprehensible that it challenges even my love for Spike. And that love is deep and abiding. He stopped, but only because she stopped him. It doesn't matter whether he actually raped her or not. He tried. She said no, and he went on, using his physical strength and a claim of love to dominate her will with his own. That's enough. That's rape. Whether or not he was successful in the attempt is truly irrelevant. And let's get some clarity on this, because every time I talk about a story with rape, I get letters from so many people who have been through various types of sexual assault. And often, especially in situations where there had been a consensual relationship, the victim claims some of the blame. So let me say, without qualification, that anyone who continues any activity after one clear no, let alone repeated no's, even if he stops of his own accord, even if he's disgusted by himself afterward, this is a serious violation of basic humanity and is not okay. Spike is horrified by his own behavior, and that's good. He should be. But it doesn't do anything to mitigate Buffy's experience here. 
In all of Buffy, this is the hardest scene for me to watch. As a woman who has been in that situation, who said no, and had someone she loved and trusted just continue on anyway, I can tell you that the shock and horror of that experience is something you carry with you, always. What Spike has going for him on this front, at least, is that he acknowledges what he's done and he does seem truly sorry for it. Some victims don't even get that much. But later, when he's in his crypt talking to Clem in a beautifully written, wonderfully complicated scene, it's unclear what he's more horrified by, that he tried or that he didn't follow through. What have I done? What didn't I do? Me. Can't be a monster, can't be a man. So the only thing left for him is to make a change and choose one. And as we watch him speed out of town on what one can only presume to be a stolen motorcycle, it seems pretty clear which one he's chosen. Well, it seems pretty clear. You think he knows? Well, if he did, why would he be here? Why is he? Our mojo's type, bro. We could have pulled this ourselves. Well, somebody had to guinea pig the meat suit. Were, were you going to volunteer? I don't trust that leprechaun. Okay, just stay frosty. This works the way we planned it. By the end of the evening, Jonathan won't be a problem. The betrayal of Jonathan that we saw ramping up in previous episodes hits full tilt now as Warren and Andrew use him to acquire magical demon orbs, all while planning to leave him holding the bag for a robbery later that night. This is no longer the geek trio. Now it's Warren running the show, using his friends to get what he wants. Once he has the orbs, once he's invulnerable, it's all about, once again, preying on women. And getting vengeance on a guy who made fun of him in the fifth grade. And while we're on the topic of orbs, what is it with this guy drawing power from pseudo-testicles? That has to be intentional. And I like that instead of going for the straight phallic thing, they went for a representation of power that actually refers to one of the most vulnerable places in the male anatomy. But still, gross. And then we've got Andrew and Jonathan on either side of him. Andrew's the weak, blind follower. And I know it's a thing, but I'm not going to talk about his sublimated homosexuality. It's played for a flat joke that I find so much less interesting than pretty much everything else in this episode. Andrew's most compelling character traits are his essential malleability and weakness. But instead, we make him all about the what? I'm not gay! And while I adore Tom Lenk and his performance, we're not doing interesting work with the character. So I think I'm just going to leave that there. What I do find compelling is Jonathan's sudden discovery of his backbone. Jonathan does not have a stellar record of being a stand-up dude, but we're seeing something of a transformation in him now. He's clearly disgusted by Warren's behavior. Andrew suspects he's going to turn on them and then confess. And when Warren wants to finish Xander off in the bronze, it's Jonathan who steps in and manipulates Warren, noting the time and the other thing they have to do, even though it's clear he's more concerned about Xander, or at least about not having yet another murder on his conscience than he is about the upcoming heist. It's good to see Jonathan traveling this moral road if for no other reason than that I love Danny Strong, which makes me want to love Jonathan. And now, finally, I'm being given a reason to love him and not feel quite so bad about it. Damn you and your irrepressible charm, Strong. Then we move into this confrontation over the armored car when Buffy tracks down Warren and faces off with him. Warren shouts her down with misogynistic language, calling her baby, asking if she's ever fought with a real man before. 
I'm the guy who beat you, he says, and it's not muscles, it's brains. But truly the source of Warren's power isn't either of those things. It's a lack of boundaries, the willingness to cross any line that gets him what he wants. That's what created the robot girlfriend, that's what killed Katrina, and that's what leads him to the events that conclude this episode. It is nice to see Jonathan, weak, powerless Jonathan, jump on Buffy's back in order to give her the secret to defeating Warren. Smash the orbs. Always the orbs, girls. Go for the orbs. But when Buffy destroys the demonic unearned power, Warren can't have it. He goes out and gets a gun, returning to Buffy to show her that no woman, even the Slayer, will ever get between him and his entitlement. I love you. You know that, right? Buffy. You think you could just do that to me? You think I'd let you get away with that? <laughs> think again. Your shirt. Tara? Sweet fancy Moses, where the hell did he... The way he shoots the gun around, so carelessly, so randomly, taking out Tara without even the intent to do so, shows the true destructiveness of this kind of person. And when it comes down to it, Warren's badness isn't about him being a man. It's about him being a bad man. And there's just no hope for those guys. No. <laughs> We've been headed in this direction with Willow for a long time. Remember when Glory took Tara's senses in season five's Tough Love? That was the first time Willow's eyes went black, and it was for Tara. The power of love to drive us into darkness is a theme in this episode, although Spike's love and his responsive darkness are a different thing, it is along similar lines. When Tara dies in Willow's arms and Willow's eyes go black, we know that the fury unleashed by this random act of violence is going to be devastating. Even as Buffy bleeds in the backyard, it's the loss of Tara that pushes Willow over the edge. And magic isn't going to be the problem now for her. It's going to be the solution. Well played, Slayer. Why didn't I get one of those? This round to you, but the game is far from over. All right. That clip doesn't have much to do with my final thoughts, but I had to open with something that was just at least a little lighter. It's been a grim day, people. We deal with horrendous acts in this episode and view them along two divides, men and women, and the ensouled and the soulless. Let's start with that. Warren presumably has a soul. According to the world building, all humans have a soul, and it is the loss of the soul in the transition to vampire that makes them so bad. When Angel had his soul returned to him, his guilt and regret tormented him for a century, and only engaging in the righteous fight to protect the innocent would give him any peace at all, and it was never very much. When he lost his soul, he went dark and became Angelus, and when he got it back, he was Angel again. So we've seen explicit credit given to the soul as the source of love and goodness. But here we have Warren, presumably in soul, doing terrible things, murdering the woman he professed to love, and all of it without a moment's hesitation or a moment's apparent regret. And then there's Spike, a monster, yes, with a love that's dark and twisty, but still it's love. He hurt Buffy, and even though she stopped him from seeing the rape through, once he shakes his head clear and realizes what he's done, he's horrified. Horrified both that he tried to do it and that he couldn't. 
And why couldn't he? If the soul is the only thing that makes someone good, able to tell right from wrong, then Spike should have no problem with anything he's done. But unlike Warren, he's tormented by his actions. He feels the weight of them, the guilt haunts him. Yes, there is definitely a part of him that wants to be a monster, that enjoyed it, but there is also a part of him that has goodness, despite the lack of a soul. So on the face of it, Spike without a soul seems to be a better person with a stronger sense of right and wrong, a sense of right and wrong that he himself wishes he didn't have. That Spike without a soul feels the weight of his actions more than Warren does with a soul, what does that say about the inoculative power of the soul against evil? Is the soul not so much the arbiter of good and bad as a vaccination against evil? On occasion, the vaccination doesn't work, and on occasion, people without the vaccination will have a natural immunity. It's a spectrum of evil, and while I don't think we get clarity on what the show is saying about the nature of the soul, there's some good discussion to be had there. And now, let's talk about men. Margaret Atwood once said, Men are afraid that women are going to laugh at them. Women are afraid that men are going to kill them. And therein lies a fundamental divide between the sexes, but let's not get carried away with the man-hate here. Warren is a man. Spike is a man. Jonathan, Andrew, and a host of floppy-haired douchebags, all men. The particular brand of insidious entitlement we're talking about this season is a very specifically white male brand of insidious entitlement, and it's important that we recognize that. But it doesn't mean that this kind of solipsistic violence only comes from men. There are good men and bad, and there are good women and bad. And bad people will wreak havoc regardless of their gender. They're just too essentially broken to not leave a path of devastation in their wake. They're the scorpion, and we're the frog. So while we're seeing predominantly men causing the damage in Buffy right now, let's not forget Gloria or Darla, Drusilla, Amy, even Faith in her darker moments. We're not having a man-hating discussion this season. We're having a discussion about one flavor of evil, which is a particularly male flavor, and it's an important discussion to have, but let's not pretend that men have the market cornered on evil. Misogyny has been a constant threat for, dare I say, all of human history, and the more threatened men become by women, the more prevalent we see this behavior. It's important to recognize it and call it out for what it is, but it doesn't mean that either the show or the people having this discussion are saying that all men are evil. I mean, we're about to see some serious shit go down, and it won't be a man at the wheel. That's it for today. I'll be back next time with Season 6, Episode 20, Villains. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.